Welcome to the Programmatic Digest podcast, a discussion of your weekly roundups on top programmatic and digital news with other programmatic ninjas. I'm your host, Ellen Parker, your very own programmatic sensei. You'll find everything we discussed today, including the expert information, show notes, and, and all referred articles on our website, programmaticdigest.com. In the Sunset's Corner this week, we welcome Sean Burke. Sean is a senior sales manager with a strong background in digital and programmatic media, ad tech, native advertising, video, social, and publisher direct sales. He's truly a mastermind in our industry with a history of driving successful new business partnerships and growing revenue with some of the largest marketers in the world. You can find him on LinkedIn and his information will be in the show notes. Welcome to the Sunset's Corner, Sean, and thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Alan. This is an amazing opportunity. I'm very excited to speak with you. Likewise. So we'll cover a couple articles today. They will be very focused on cookie-less, the cookie-less world we may be entering. <laughs> uh, yes. Specifically contextual, we'll touch a little bit on privacy here and there, and then we'll end up with a cool update I wanted you to talk to us about, you know, the latest happening in Teed, in Teed's world, okay? Sure thing, yeah. Love to do it. All right. So the first article is called, it's a balancing act. Media buyers want contextual targeting features to evolve further by Jessica Davies in Digiday. Yes. So, so basically, if I had to recap the article, it would go a little bit like the following. So the goal is to explore ways that contextual targeting can be applied in a way that doesn't dumb down what has been achieved from acute audience targeting tactics used for addressable media, like behavioral advertising, which has been probably the, the, main, <laughs> the main tactic on any media plan nowadays. But by definitely, the, definitely in the programmatic world, for definitely, sure. Yeah. yeah, for sure. So, but by doing so in a way that avoids the risk of falling foul of data protection law or being at the mercy of um, any future anti-tracking changes from browsers. So just as a quick reminder before we dig into some of the solution I highlighted from, from Jessica's article, contextual targeting is centered on the environment in which an ad appears rather than individuals' inferred intent to purchase an item or click on an ad or content based on their former online behavioral patterns. Sorry. Here's some of the more advanced future we want to see or us media buyers and programmatic ninjas wants to see. According to Jessica Davis, like digging beyond the individual site and page information or categories of site, but rather instead looking into the tone in which an article is written, the words themselves, an image on the page, or even a specific paragraph. So, so Sean... So and that's kind of that's kind of like uh, step number one, yeah. and I, I think there's ways we can evolve contextual targeting like well beyond what is available today. And I think that's generally the tone of this article, right? It's like we're we're faced with this massive change as an industry between you know some of the things you mentioned. I think you actually really nailed the the biggest kind of uh, factors that are in play right now. Mm-hmm. Obviously, GDPR kind of led the way from a, a regulation in perspective with uh, Europe adopting that yeah. uh, wholesale uh, across their kind of ecosystem or market. And now we also have the California Consumer Privacy Act that's set to kick in next year. 
And then those are kind of the, uh, the regulatory factors that are here. We also have the anti-tracking changes that the you know, private industry in, in terms of Apple and now possibly even Google have uh, implemented on their end. And so Safari now deletes cookie data in a seven-day window. Um, and Chrome has, you know, Google has hinted at potentially doing something similar to that in the yeah. near future. And the, the thing that's alarming is that between those two browsers really have the, the lion's share of, uh, of inventory, especially on mobile. Uh, and we know mobile is like 65, 70% of all ad inventory today. So um, obviously we're faced with a, a huge challenge there. And so I think uh, the contextual targeting offerings or opportunities that exist today are, are not nearly as evolved as what we have in the audience or behavioral targeting side. So there's just a lot of work to do there. And I think the, the tone of this article is that media buyers are starting to demand those changes so that they can kind of strategize how targeting looks in a cookie-less world. I agree because, so I've, I've had several roles where I was either on the execution side or the media strategy and media planning side. And contextual is one of those tactics that you may add, but I really, at a larger scale, it's it's not a tactic that I was I would consider very conversion focused. It's not a tactic that I would convert uh, that would I would consider for like an e-commerce or even something that would want to push for or drive any type of form submission. But look, totally. looking at how, and the following article talks about even more in depth of some of those updates that we would want. I mean, looking at some of those updates we're going to talk about, I am definitely interested into running some of that because now we're, we're more intelligent in our form of contextually targeting. And if indeed we are moving towards a cookie-less world, everyone needs to hear this and get used to it. <laughs> no! <laughs> if we are moving towards a cookie-less, I don't think, think third and first-party data especially not first-party data, should not disappear. I don't think it, it should disappear, but I think it will be so regulated that we, could, we would only be able to use it to some extent. We need to, we need to figure it out a way, you know? And, and I have a note here that I, I giggle every time I think about it, but it's almost like a fashion trend at this point, contextual targeting, right? It's like those yep. overalls that your mom and your dad were wearing now it's back into fashion i see like the next generation wearing overalls and or the high-waisted and white leg pants basically this is how I see <laughs> targeting coming yeah up. and you know i think that the the thing about contextual targeting is that for a very long time i think especially as as audience targeting or behavioral targeting tactics became so advanced and and so precise um, I think contextual targeting almost became like a little bit of a dirty term, if you will, um, in that people just assume that the only way to do it is to, to just, you're basically dumbing down the concept of programmatic targeting to only category level or maybe domain level targeting. Maybe you can get a little more specific than that. But the solutions we really need are, are ones that actually allow you to digest and provide insights on the content at the page level. Yeah. And that's kind of where the challenge is now. And I think when you get to solutions that can digest the content on a, on a specific page level, that's when you start to really be able to achieve some preciseness in targeting. And by the way, I agree with everything that you said in terms of like, none of this is ideal. Nobody that works in programmatic wants <laughs> cookies to go away. So I don't mean to sound that that's like a, a goal of mine or, or of our industry here. 
Um, but it is a reality that we face. And I think that, you know, the, the fact of the matter is a lot of marketers are, are not very well prepared for this change based on the conversations I'm having. Um, oh, yeah. But I do have some examples like specific to, to even my business um, that, that are, are showing the brands are starting to think about this a little bit more, actually. And I'll give you one actual campaign example without naming yeah. brand or anything. But yeah. I had a brand that, you know, a programmatic campaign, they wanted to reach uh, people that were interested in brunch content. Now, brunch content is not a site category. <laughs> you may, you cannot go into uh, it's a DV360 or the trade desk and, and target brunch category sites or, uh, you know, brunch.com is not a highly visited domain that you would want to single out to build a scalable ad campaign around, right? But um, when you're able to break it down to the page level, and in this instance, uh, keyword targeting specifically, um, we were able to actually identify articles all across the premium publisher ecosystem that contain that word brunch. Um, and, you know, you could maybe look at it from a frequency perspective. They mentioned brunch three times. Obviously, this is an article that at least in, in some regards is about that subject. Um, and, and we were actually able to achieve a pretty significant scale through that tactic, believe it or not, um, and build a, a scalable campaign to find brunch content all around the Internet. So I think there's a couple different things that need to happen on the tech side. We need to have more precise capabilities in terms of achieving this type of contextual relevance. Also, from a strategic perspective, I think brands need to do a better job now of identifying the types of content and the types of contextual environments in a programmatic setting that are most relevant to their consumers. Um, so I think work needs to be done on both ends. Um, but there's a there's a tremendous opportunity here for whoever can figure this out on on both sides on the on the ad tech side in terms of somebody that can develop uh, some of these new capabilities we need for contextual and then. Also on the advertiser side in, in developing targeting strategies that surround those capabilities as opposed to just, you know, I know the person has a household income of so-and-so and visited these types of, of sites in the past and therefore I'm going to draw a conclusion about them based on audience and or behavioral targeting. Um, that's that's still going to be a huge part of, of every media plan moving forward, but we need to develop alternative strategies that are not dependent on cookies, I think. I think that's a great segue into the next article, which is called Smarter Contextual Targeting is Media's Brand's Weapon of the Future. It's written by Alessandro De Sanche in Ad Exchanger and the Cell Cider, which is a column of Ad yep. Exchanger, I think. And so just to recap really quick, the article, contextual advertising capabilities need to be upgraded and refined, applying the same level of granularity and intelligence deployed towards the collection and processing of user data. We must move the focus, and that's um, directly quoting from the article, we must move the focus from the user ID to the content ID, which I thought was really interesting. A unique ID assigned to a single piece of content, such as a page, video, or a sound file, and in your case, it was that particular keyword, as a building block of taxonomy and portfolio of contextual segments. He adds, by treating the content ID in the same way we would approach a user ID, we can create a personas built on artificial intelligence detected nav na navigational patterns, sequences and outcomes. Certain patterns, for example, could lead to a high engagement with certain products or conversion, like an intensity of behavior, the time of day, day of the week, and broader seasonality, such as a holidays or sporting event, should also be added to the picture when it comes to contextual targeting, along with geolocation. So 
he's definitely taking it to the like extra next level. The user oh, yeah. points otherwise used for an audience targeting could be turned into a content ID data point, such as how many men versus women visited a content ID. So this, I call it contextual targeting 2.0, but I don't know because I don't know how realistic some of those mention is. What do you think, how fast do you think our industry could adapt to some of those? I think anytime there's a new targeting strategy that goes into the marketplace, there's this nexus you have to reach between you know, preciseness and also scalability. And, and what happens increasingly because of, of cookie erosion and of Safari's uh, ITP, what happens is that, you know, you define a very specific audience that you're looking to reach. But the reality of it is, is that, you know, by the time you deal with cookie match rates through the DSP, uh, cookie erosion, Safari, all of these different factors that are out there in the ecosystem, you end up missing out on, on potentially even a majority of those target consumers. So I, I think, again, it's a complementary tactic. Some of the things he proposes here are probably not very scalable, especially at the onset, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't test them and, and you know leverage them as complementary tactics to more traditional, maybe contextual targeting as well as audience targeting as, as long as that continues to exist. The real interesting thing in here and and my version of kind of like contextual targeting 2.0, as you said, and I love that. I'm probably going to steal that, by the way. Um, <laughs> I, I, I absolutely love that because that's what this is all about, right? It's about taking yeah. it beyond like the category level, the domain level. What, how can we get deeper? But he mentions video in here. He also mentioned sound, which is interesting. I think sound's probably a little easier to decipher than it's video. Like really, it's very advanced because then we're almost tapping into the voice world whenever we bring in sound. Um, yeah, that's like that's next level. And I do think there's going to be some privacy restriction with the voice world. And you and I can discuss that another day. Oh, yeah. When you talk about Alexa and, and doing yes. that, that that's, I see no reason why that wouldn't be bucketed in the exact same place oh, as yeah. cookie regulations. I mean, if anything, it's, it's more intrusive. Um, but we've seen, you know, the major tech has had a, a, those the, the big companies have had a way of getting around some of that stuff, whether it's through users being logged in or, or things of those nature, they're able to kind of get around it. But I think video is really like the truly scalable contextual targeting opportunity that does not exist today. Mm -hmm. um, being able to decipher the actual content of a video, I, and we can kind of do this with images right now. So there are companies yeah. out there that leverage uh, computer vision technology, um, to actually kind of uh, disseminate the content of an image and, and determine like the focal points of the image, for example, and, and things of that nature, and actually even begin to decipher what the image is itself by comparing it to many other images that it may have uh, data on. So um, there are companies out there that are doing that and doing it successfully on the static image basis. I haven't, I'm not familiar with a company that can do it with video yet, but I would think that would, that would truly be the evolution of contextual targeting. Um, is if we were able to achieve that. Uh, Teeds is a little bit of a unique uh, advantage, if you will, because um, with our video ads, since they're in editorial, uh, we have the, the benefit of being surrounded by words, essentially. So um, we're one of the few companies out there that can actually achieve um, contextual targeting through, through keywords at scale for, for video specifically. Um, the, the keyword targeting opportunity has generally been confined more to display tactics. Mm 
yes. I think, uh, from a from a format perspective. And that's that just goes back to the fact that it's very difficult to decipher the content of a video. So yeah. I really that's one thing in this article that stood out to me, and it's just a small little snippet there. But whoever figures that out, I think it's going to have a great deal of success in this kind of post uh, cookie world that we're potentially facing here. Yeah, I, I agree. And if and again, all of those articles are I really wanted to pull, you know, some I mean, actually, you helped me pull some of those articles. And I'm glad you did, because it definitely helps us really dig in onto into that topic. And I do think that it's it's important that we start paying attention to it. And so this next article is a little bit on the darker side, um, but it's called The Grim Future of an Open Web Devoid of User Tracking. And this is by Paul Bannister in Ad Exchanger and Cellsider as well. And we've been hearing how browsers are updating their user privacy, as you mentioned earlier. Chrome, Apple, Safari, Firefox actually also recently did something. In many cases, um, the loss of these technology will deprive publishers and marketers of features such as user targeting, frequency capping, attribution tech tracking, and even basic web anal analytics. There are some innovations or old ideas made new being positioned to solve for these issues, including contextual targeting, login users' IP-based targeting, and Apple's privacy-preserving ad-click attribution, and which is much more needed. Some of, some of the effects, and I'm quoting from the article, include declining traffic, and those are the bad effects, I guess, from some of those, some of those browsers' uh, updates. A good effect would be more consumer privacy handle to some extent. And some of the bad effects as a marketer would include the following, like a declining traffic and revenues for some publishers, e-commerce site alike, and e-commerce. For publishers in particular, CPMs have been cut significantly for Safari browsers, decreasing the overall value of that audience. These issues cut across yep. programmatic and direct deals due to extremely limited targeting capabilities and the lack of any frequency capping or attribution metrics. To me, okay, so, so this is more on the publisher side. So, but it still aligns really well with our conversation so far, giving us a, maybe more reason why we should definitely consider contextual. What is Teet's position with first some of the browsers updates? How did that affect you guys? And secondly, I think you already mentioned it, but I really specifically into the, the whole privacy thing and some of those browsers update. What are some of the solutions Teats has adapted with those updates? Uncontrollable. Yeah. yeah, I mean, well, a lot of it's out of our control and, and out of the control of our publishers, unfortunately. Yeah. I think a, a few things happen in this world, though. I, personally, I've never been a huge fan of the open web because I've always been on the, I, I've always worked on a lot of brand awareness type campaigns throughout my career, and, and the open web is not always conducive to those types of campaigns. Um, but I think what this ultimately does, and it mentions the decline of traffic for, for publishers, I think ultimately um, it, it moves power away from what we call the long tail on the Internet, which is like, you know, the very smaller sites that uh, you might find yourself on that, but that aren't necessarily premium publishers or, or premium content. Um, and, and I think it kind of pushes a uh, the marketers budgets back towards premium publishers and so that really does benefit teeth because we've actually made it a point throughout our history to only partner with the most premium publishers on the web um, so we've already kind of taken a stance against partnering with what would be described as the the greater open web and/ or the long tail 
as it's known. Um, and so I think that that benefits us in a way. And the other thing that I think plays into our hands as a company is just kind of what we talked about before a little bit, which is the fact that we have the ability to leverage uh, contextual targeting strategies like keywords, which are already available today. Um, and can achieve very precise targeting uh, across that that premium publisher set that we that we work with. So um, I think that's kind of our stance on it right now. It, it's definitely I think the the what's kind of been overstated a little bit is that publishers CPMs are going down on Safari. Well, of course they are because almost all major brands leverage some form of behavioral targeting or audience targeting yeah, so right there you're, you're pulling all that competition away from the safari impressions right nobody's bidding on them because you're not able to use cookie targeting on it so you're just working it's just a, there's much less competition there that doesn't mean that once everybody's on a play even playing field once if chrome adopts the same stance um then the same thing will happen with chrome right so i think then that kind of evens the playing field and they'll see those safari cpms creep back up again and again, I think also the way to combat this is uh, in the greater sense is just coming up with more refined contextual targeting strategies that aren't as reliant on the open web and, and on uh, cookie, cookie-based targeting. So um, the open web, I think, is all, like for a lot of the brands I've worked with, they, they like to transact on a private marketplace or when, it, when it's, a, when it's a, a platform like Tease, they're typically looking to work with us on a private marketplace level. Um, so they can ensure the quality of the inventory. They can ensure that it's optimized towards their specific campaign KPIs. And we can give them like prioritization, discounted floor CPM, some of those things that we're able to offer in that scenario. So I, I think there are, are lots of potential benefits uh, down the road for us. And it, it's a very interesting time. But, you know, I, I, right now, of course, in the short term, any browser that eliminates cookies, the publishers are going to see CPMs decrease on those browsers. But I think it's more due to a lack of competition than maybe the actual value of that impression in itself. Um, the other thing I think that these changes will do is increase programmatic guaranteed type buys, which are kind of like publisher direct through programmatic pipes. And um, the reason for that is that, you know, what, the open web becomes a lot less valuable in a cookieless yeah. world, right? So it, it's, it, it's, if you're not that concerned with the user as you are with the content, then the open web is not going to, it's going to be majorly uh, negatively impacted by that change, right? So um, I think in that environment, it pushes more budgets towards PMPs and towards um, programmatic guarantee deals. Because at the end of the day, marketers need to reach their target consumers through whatever pipes are available. And if they need to have a certain, a great, a great example is like in the health or pharmaceutical category. There's only so many opportunities to, re and they've already been dealing with this because of the uh, HIPAA regulations, which That's make right. it very difficult to target in that category, right? So that's an example I always like to use. They, they've been doing this for, for years now. So they might be like, from a category perspective, the most experienced at, at navigating around cookie targeting. So um, in that world, you really do need to partner, whether it's in a programmatic basis or direct basis, you need to partner with the publishers that have the inventory and have the users that are relevant to your product or service. So uh, I think it really pushes budgets in programmatic guaranteed and the PMP world where, uh, you know, there's, there's just more guaranteed in general. And, and again, like there's really not a lot of value left on the open web and on those long tail sites once you can't reach that specific user through that uh, targeting tactic. So. Yeah, I agree. I don't think the open web is going to hmm, 
probably going to get in trouble for saying this out loud, but the open wedding <laughs> is probably not going to last very long unless we get our, our, our things together. I You mentioned healthcare, which is a great example, and I will use it again because I think it positions how tactics at contextual or site direct tactics could you know, be beneficial for a healthcare client versus just an e-commerce or a B2C client. Another one I like to bring up is more like on the B2B side. I remember running a few um, travel campaigns where it was a, I think I mentioned that before on a, on a podcast, but where it was a convention center just attracting meetings planner, meeting planners. And to my surprise, the programmatic tactic did perform pretty well, you know, and the, the conversion was considered just... Uh, a form submission, if I remember correctly, and it was a phone call. But the tactic that almost sent most of the conversion was sponsored content, which was a direct site uh, partnership with some of the meeting focus publishers, where they were writing like a quick blog, blasting it on their on their website with like maybe a banner on their homepage. But that tactic did three to four times better. Yeah. Than- my first automatic uh, and my retargeting. Well, the retargeting is always done well. Is always going to perform, in my opinion, fairly. Retargeting well. should always be your yeah. best performing tactic. Right, yeah. but if you take that one out, I mean, sponsored content was killing it, and I was targeting specifically meet, meeting planners. You know, the decision maker in, in that company, or like somebody else's first, like that website first party data. I mean, if, if contextual is going to be, especially if we refer back to what the first article was mentioning, if we really take it down to even like a paragraph or whatever is happening within that page, if we start targeting like content within the paragraph versus just like, I don't know, like something a, a versus the category of a page, I definitely yeah. think that some of those tactics could even perform way better than a third party behavioral data tactic. And I'm a big fan of, potentially again what i'll say what i'll say is that i I think that campaign might be a little bit of an anomaly if given the choice i think we would all uh, on our side of this business like you know taking the user experience and the consumer out of it which we should never do but if we were to take them out of it um i think we all love to keep cookie based targeting here forever uh it's an unbelievably powerful tool it's been proven to be very, very effective. So, I mean, yeah, this is this is probably a, a more grim version of your podcast than you're used to doing because it's like we're talking about like the end of the world as we know it here. <laughs> but, but yes, I mean, I, I, I think I think the the issue with sponsored content is is there, it's twofold. One is that, it, you know, most of those opportunities are not very scalable. But if you have a very small target audience you're looking to reach that all happen to kind of visit the same five sites and obviously that's a no-brainer you want to surround those sites with as much uh with as much advertising as possible but you know in a world where you're trying to reach maybe let's say 20 percent of the u.s population is you know meets the qualifications to buy a, a certain car based on their their consumer uh marketing data like in that world sponsored content is probably not going to be the, the scalable solution you want. So okay. I think it, it, these are still like what we're talking about here in a lot of these articles. These are still truly programmatic targeting concepts. Like they're they're utilizing the, the enormous power of the, the known web and and um, all of the users out there, just reaching them in a different way that doesn't require that cookie based targeting. Um, but I, I still very much view all of these tactics as being 
driven by programmatic pipes, by RTV. You need that efficiency um, and, and you need the scale. And there's just so, there's only a limited number of, of means to achieve uh, both efficiency and scale. And I, I think, you know, that's why if somebody can figure out how to do sponsored content at like serious scale uh, across a thousand sites, then, then obviously that would be a yeah. big win. But, um, but I think in the world we're in now, it needs to be something a little bit more scalable where we're not kind of reliant on so much manual work being done. Oh my gosh. I was going to say, I mean, it did perform really well for like campaign performance wise, but Ooh, I mean, <laughs> just setting up the partnership, reviewing some terms, like just going back and forth in emails, calls, and oh, yeah. texts. I mean, just that whole thing. I would rather it's it's not an exciting yeah. world. Like direct no, no. are not exciting, and some of those partners do not make it easy. Some of those publishers do not make it easy on us. Exactly. Very, yeah. And and they throw the word programmatic, they throw the word um the proprietary word out there very, very quick. We're the only one who offers yeah. it's like, wait a minute, buddy, come on now. Come on. This is not programmatic. <laughs> I'm emailing you to place the bias, not programmatically done. Um but anyway, it's all about education. It's all about, you know, just assessing what works, like you said, for the client and for the campaign. And now on to yep. some better news, in my opinion. <laughs> the last article we'll review before the next segment is some pretty cool teeth update from an article I came across on mobilemarketingmagazine.com. The article is written by Tyrone Stewart, and it's called Teats Links Up with Moat to Offer Billing Only on 100% Viewable Ads. And so... Um, Teeds has collaborated with Oracle Data Cloud's Moat to launch a product which enables advertisers to set their own viewability standard and only get billed when those standards are met. I don't have to go over this article since I have the true source here. Why don't you just tell us um, <laughs> really quick what this is about, why we should get excited, and some maybe some like you know highlights or lowlights from pushing this product out. I mean, there's, I don't see any low lights to this, and I'm not just saying that because it's teeth, but um, I, I honestly, like, this is, uh, this is, this is something we've been uh, kind of focused on for a very long time at Teeds, and so we've always, we've all, we've already kind of, before this was announced and before we put this offer into the marketplace, um, or this transaction model into the marketplace, we'd already made viewability, like, essentially table stakes. Um, for our ecosystem. And what I mean by that is that we don't feel that not, we never have felt that non-viewable ads should be paid for, essentially, right? So what we did um, up until now to ensure that as much as we could within our control was that our ads don't actually serve until they're, the pixels are 50% or more in view, right? So that's pretty much aligned with that MRC viewability standard, the Media Ratings Council viewability standard. Um, and so even before we made this change, we were already averaging 70% plus viewability uh, for the video standard, which is two seconds, 50% plus in view, and then 80% more viewability uh, by the display standard, which is one second and pixels 50% or plus in view. So we are already very well aligned with the MRC standard, which is why we were able to offer this transaction model in the first place. Now, on top of those numbers I just gave you, we're also using predictive AI to analyze the billions and billions of impressions that we've served across our ecosystem, across all the publishers we work with all around the world, 
to determine what is the most viewable inventory, if you will. In other words, which, which uh, ad slots on which publishers on which pages um, are most likely to meet one of those standards. And the really cool thing is we're now allowing marketers or advertisers to set their own standards, right? So you think a, an ad needs to be in view for more than two seconds, then tell us what your standard is and we can look to adopt that um, and, and, you know, generate the best possible outcome based on that standard. So I think it's something, again, that's always been table stakes for teams. We view it as absolutely essential um, to the programmatic advertising ecosystem. Uh, and, and now it's really just more of a billing model. So essentially what we're willing to do is, is offer any non-viewable inventory that we send, uh, as value add. So you'll, you'll just get those impressions for free. And I think it's, I think it's really something we've been working on and, and we've, we've gotten most of the way of achieving for years now through just the way our ads function and the way that they serve. And now we're just going that, that last mile, if you will, to actually guarantee it, right? So, very exciting stuff. I mean, I think just intuitively, if you ask anyone, any marketer, whether they should pay for an ad that no one saw, that we can prove no one saw. I mean, I don't know any marketer that's going to be that's going to want to buy ads that no one saw, right? So uh, I think we've come a long way as an industry on this. I can remember the first like month or two that, that viewability started really popping up in the trades years ago. Uh, and obviously, Group M took a major stand on that very early on. Uh, but, you know, I, I think that it also, in a lot of ways, is an unfair standard that's been applied to digital, if we really want to get into it. Because you can always, when you're watching an ad on the, on the television, you can always get up and go to the bathroom, right? Yeah, that's true. And then I always like to say you can't control uh, somebody's eyeballs. But this is definitely the closest <laughs> thing that yeah. makes me feel comfortable enough and confident enough about the type of inventory I'm targeting. So I yeah. definitely think it's pretty. It's a pretty cool um, update. So thank you for sharing. Looking forward to trying it for sure. Absolutely. So now we're moving on to the segment where we like to shine our diversity light on an agency, a brand, a creative, or anything related that's done diversity right or wrong. So do you have anything in mind that you'd like to share with us? Sure, yeah. I actually, um, I, I recently read an article um, where Unilever's uh, kind of marketing chief who is really, has really like taken a strong stance on diversity across their product portfolio and across all the different markets they operate in. And, and this is a great quote. It literally says, we'll distance ourselves from agencies that don't challenge stereotypes. And we don't have to go into the full article or, or any of the, the quotes itself, but what, uh, on more of a conceptual level, what I think is really great about this is that, um, you know, everyone pays lip service to achieving diversity within their organization in, in the modern business world, right? And um, it's just something that every marketer does in one way or another. But I think the difference here is that when, when one of the world's largest marketers talk about Unilever, P&G, these are like the biggest marketers in the world, when they demand change and they put kind of financial pressure behind that change, that's when we will actually see change occur. So I think this is an incredibly important issue. I also think that, you know, the CPG or FMCG kind of category in a lot of ways is the best suited to drive these kinds of changes. Um, and there's two reasons for that. 
first of all, just the basic reason we're all thinking of, which is they spend so much money on advertising, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. they can they can force an agency's hand uh, in a lot of ways um, through their spend power, right? Nobody wants to lose one of those big companies. They're kind of like the, the flagship uh, partners of a lot of these major agency holding companies. So there's that side. But more importantly, almost, I think, maybe not more importantly, but just as importantly, um, are the wide variety of products that they offer. So they really need to reach pretty much everyone across that diversity spectrum, if you will, right? Um, so there's that. So they already are very attuned to the differences between um, different cultures and, and groups of people. And then the other aspect of that is all the different markets they serve. So these companies are, are truly global companies, right? So they have not only the insights from all of those different markets around the world, but also the ability to affect change in all of those markets around the world. So I think that that really makes them the ideal category. And Unilever is obviously a leader in that category. So really cool to see uh, someone at the very top of the flagpole come out and, and take a stance like that. Um, and, and her name, by the way, I should say that is Aileen Santos. And so that was the person who came out with this article. And um, it wasn't written by her, but this was a story about her achieving diversity among Unilever. And it, it's, it's just an exciting time to see these things happen. I mean, I, I think that, again, it's something we've talked about forever, and mm-hmm. it's so easy to just pay lip service to these kinds of oh, issues. For sure. And then maybe they'll go away or people yeah, will forget no. about it. But when you see the largest marketers in the world taking a stand and putting like financial pressure on their agency partners um, to achieve greater diversity in their advertising and their, their kind of media budgets, uh, it's, it's exciting because I think it's where we all want to get to. And um, they're the ones that can really make it happen. So very yeah. exciting time. Uh, thank you for sharing. This is definitely a pretty cool um, update. It's definitely pretty cool articles and I'll make sure to link it in the show notes. And also I do think that we're, we're pretty far from where we want to be, but we've made some progress compared to like the last 10 years or even the last five years in my opinion. So yes, totally agree with all of the, all of the above. So now in closing, do you mind sharing three fun facts about yourself in less than 20 seconds? (laughs) Sure. I am a huge snowboarder, is one fun fact. I live on the beach in Long Island, and I'm a big beach bum as well. (laughs) And then the the last one is I am an enormous fan of my Temple University owls. Go owls. Uh, Those are three fun facts about me. That's awesome. And any parting advice for any freshman ninjas getting into the industry? Maybe some quick to-dos and don'ts, a tip or two that you learned along the way? Sure, yeah. I mean, I think this is like general career advice to anyone, but when you're young, don't make, don't make big decisions about your career based on relatively small amounts of money. Um, the most important thing is to gain the best possible experience uh, and work under the best possible people. And that's why I think, you know, I, there's obviously a big trend in our industry with uh, more junior folks kind of hopping around from one holding company or one trading desk to another. And I would just encourage those folks to, to stick around a little longer and, and see what you can learn in a couple of years. And the people that I've seen do that have, have ultimately had much stronger career paths in programmatic. Um, they've really gotten to know 
the ins and outs of, of certain DSPs, certain supply partners, certain types of marketers and categories of marketers and made themselves experts. And, and it's really hard to become an expert in something if, if you only stick around any given place for six months, right? So uh, that would be my biggest piece of advice, just a, a trend I've seen. I've been in the advertising media business for 14 years now. Uh, and it's definitely a, a trend I see going in a, a not so great direction. Some of it's on the agencies too. They have to do more to incentivize yeah. people to, to stay around a little bit longer. But um, just in terms of like speaking to someone who's just right out of college and looking to get into media and programmatic, uh, give it some time, overcome some challenges and, and you'll be better for it. And uh, that would be the, the easiest thing I think that I would encourage people to think about a little more. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. We had so much fun. It was fun. <laughs> it's amazing you can have so much fun talking about such a potentially <laughs> awful thing. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, I don't know. I'm seeing the glass way, the glass halfway full, but that's just my personality. So I think it's going to be a positive aspect in our industry. But you know, we can call it <laughs> for now. For now. Yeah. No, this is great. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Again, you'll find everything we've discussed today, including Sean's information, show notes, and all referred articles on our website, programmaticdigest.com. Please take a few minutes to leave us a review wherever you're streaming this podcast and share with anyone you know can benefit from it. In conclusion, fam, we're all humans working in a fast advancing industry. So as a gentle reminder, we're not saving lives, y'all. At the end of the day, our mission on this podcast is to share knowledge, highlight diversity, and educate ourselves as we build this community of programming ninjas or families, as we would say in my African culture. Stay confident.